Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Contracts for the Climate. I am your host, Becky Anderson, and today it's all about benchmarking contractors. And I'm really grateful to be speaking to Jenny Cohen, a solicitor at Herbert Smith Freehill's Sydney office and the lead drafter on Izzy's Clause. Izzy's Clause, for those of you who haven't already read it on the website, uh, is a mechanism which allows buyers and principals to benchmark contractors' emissions against the market, the idea being to encourage best practice in line with what is feasible in the market. So, Jenny, going back to the start before we tackled Izzy's Clause, why did you want to become a lawyer in the first place? Hi, Becky. Thanks for having me. Why did I want to become a lawyer? Well, when I was in high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do, which is, I think, a common story. But I knew what I liked to do, and I really enjoyed maths and both, both English and maths. And it seemed like a career that could meet me in both of those strengths in terms of problem solving, but also reading and writing and analysis, I think. But separately, I also had a bit of a drive around wanting to kind of save the world when I was at school. That hasn't exactly gone away, but it was (laughs) quite strong in school. And law seemed to be a career that had an opportunity for me to find pathways to maybe make a contribution in some way. So that's why I found myself here. So I guess that leads me very neatly onto my question. If those were your drivers from the early age when you were at school, when you got into law school, what kind of law were you interested in? What what drew you in? What kind of law was I interested in at university? I mean, it was hard to know. We were like, you know, learning all sorts of topics and I didn't really think I had an interest in particularly one area, especially in the early days. But outside of the actual like lectures and tutorials, I was really interested in the social justice arm of the law society. And I got involved in that way to work in community, work with community legal (laughs) centres, volunteer where I could with mentorship programs. One of my most favourite memories from those times was doing an internship at Legal Aid up in the Northern Territory in Australia, which is quite a remote area, especially the area that I was interning in. And I was really drawn towards working with Indigenous communities, especially in university, but also broadly in community and making an impact in a wider way where I could. So I think that's where I was working towards outside of my studies, but I didn't have a particular interest in a certain subject, if that was the question I think you asked. (laughs) (laughs) No worries, no worries. And so what happened next? I guess I was coming towards the end of graduation, needed to get a job. I found myself in corporate law and I think think that is, again, a really common story. Unfortunately, just the nature of community legal centres and legal aid and that universe is that it's really uncommon or rare for graduate lawyers to to start in that area because of you know limited resources etc so I found myself wanting to work in commercial law at least to you know kind of learn the ropes and see what this whole universe was about that we learned five years of study doing so that's kind of how that's kind of what happened next. So I, I found myself in a boutique commercial law firm 
doing property law. And then after a few years doing property law, I decided, well, I kind of questioned what my next step was. And then the next thing for me to do, which was kind of sensible after kind of speaking to a few people and thinking about what my skills could be used in was construction. The move from construct from property to construct to construction was doable, even though it was quite unusual for a lawyer to PQE, that's what we call it here, post-qualified experience. I don't yes, know. Yes, we it's call it that Yeah, we call okay, it that in the same. England. Okay, cool. I think it's quite unusual, at least in my circles, for a lawyer at like two or three PQE to move into a whole different area of law. But it was something that I was really keen to do to expand my world and to kind of pivot into something a bit more interesting and complex. And so during this time where you're making this pivot and doing the this interesting move from property to construction, what sort of pro bono, have you, have you got any time to do any pro bono stuff? Are you doing any pro bono stuff? How's that slotting in? In the first two years of working in the property firm, I didn't do any pro bono. And I think that was the nature of being a young grad, kind of learning everything from the beginning, being really busy, not really knowing how to kind of split your week other than work. Like, like I think when you're kind of starting out, you just put your head down and kind of get on with it. I mean, nothing's changed too much, but, you know, I have learned to kind of look outside of that to some extent. And so the other good thing about moving into the construction for the construction team was that I moved into a much bigger firm and with the bigger firm came a lot of opportunities to do pro bono work, which I didn't have in the smaller firm where I was working in property law. So that was really great for me because the firm that I worked in had a really strong pro bono practice. We worked a lot with social enterprises in the construction sector, especially with the Homeless Persons Legal Centre and also with the Chancery Lane Project, which is how I came into contact with the Chancery Lane Project, which was something I really enjoyed doing when I was in the construction team at this last firm. And I've since moved, but that's kind of what happened at that point in time. So how did you get started with Chancery Lane Project? Phoebe Roberts, who you might know, she was in my team at Minterellison in Construction. We were friends, we sat near each other, and she was really passionate, still is, but at the time she was really passionate about the Chancery Lane Project. And I think at the time she was kind of bringing it into Sydney. It was kind of new territory. And we would speak about it. She would talk to our team about it, try get everyone involved, speak about the cool things going on and people that were involved could kind of get involved as much or as little as, as they wanted, which was really good at that point in time when you don't really know how much you can and, or can't commit. But yeah, so I started dipping my toes into hackathons, which the Transfer Lane Project did a couple of years ago. And that's when I started working on some of these clauses. And then there were other projects that I got involved in. Like I think there was a net zero project that was happening a couple of years ago. But my main involvement with Chancery Lane has been attending a handful of hackathons. So maybe a handful really. But in that time, like a little bit of work has come out of it, such as Izzy's clause. And there was another clause that I worked on. And there's been a few other things that have come out of that. That leads me very nicely. You've very neatly segued me onto my next question, which is, let's talk about Izzy's clause. Who's Izzy? How is the clause formed in the first place? And, and that sort of good stuff. I named the clause Izzy's clause after my nanny, actually, 
who looked after me and my brother and sister from the day we came home from the hospital to eight years old when we moved to Australia. So for eight years of my life. So really like I consider Izzy as a second grandmother. Yes, she was a special person. So she was really the first name that popped into my head when I was trying to think of a name. How did Izzy's cause come about? So it was hard for me to kind of think about this and you know, I was prompted with the question a little while ago because there wasn't one event. It was multiple conversations and multiple kind of iterations of this idea. But the beginning of it was a hackathon, as I mentioned. So I just, you know, rocked up to this hackathon, not really knowing what was going to happen. And the cool thing about those hackathons was in the Zoom room, we would be split up into breakout rooms. And I think I landed up in a breakout room with like two or three people or maybe more. And then at the end of it, we were asked if anyone wanted to volunteer to take this idea forward. But at the time, it wasn't a green benchmarking idea. Like I can't even remember what the idea was. It was like something completely different. This idea was an evolution of that initial idea. But what happened was me and my colleague who ended up taking the, the idea that we landed on in the hackathon at the time, we then ended up speaking to someone in our technology law team about that idea. And he was the one that started talking about how technology contracts operate. And this concept of benchmarking came up in the context of supply agreements. And then that's what got us thinking about well, how could we apply that same concept to this whole issue of climate risk? And that's when I remember, you know, there's Maria's scorecard in the playbook. And Mm. after kind of knowing about other clauses, it, it kind of fell into place around benchmarking specifically emissions, where there's already a tool to, um, input data around emissions in the scorecard available. So it was just kind of one thing after another. And it was really like experimental process. Me me and my colleague worked on it at the time. And Phoebe was also someone that we were kind of bouncing ideas around. So it was very much like a team collaborative effort. But yeah, I think like the point, I guess, I just want to make around this idea was that mm. we didn't kind of imagine it out <laughs> of thin air, like in this hackathon as this, you know, really unique concept. It really was something that, evolved out of multiple conversations so it sounds like it was Um, a really iterative collaborative process which is kind of the thing that at TCLP that we're always aiming for and encouraging so yeah definitely and you know sometimes you know before attending hackathons after like reading some of these clauses it was a little bit daunting to go to these hackathons and think like how can I come up with this really imaginative unique idea but you know, going through this process of Izzy's clause, it was a reminder that you don't really need to go in with these imaginative ideas to begin with. I mean, of course, if you have them, great, but it's not compulsory and you can still, through a creative process of conversation, come up with unique ideas that can be built on as a team. So that's really the story of Izzy. What's so wonderful about that is, and again, it kind of ties into the heart of a lot of what TCLP is about, is taking really familiar concepts and mechanisms in contracts that we have used, probably in some cases for hundreds of years, you know, and saying, if I was going to tweak this to make it deliver on climate, what would that look like? 
So that sort of leads me on to my next question, um, because there's going to be all sorts of wonderful people listening to this podcast, some of whom are very familiar with benchmarking, some of whom come across it never at all in their day-to-day work. So can you just run us through, so what is a benchmarking clause? How do we typically use them in the market? So my experience with benchmarking is like very limited. I guess the idea came through conversations with the technology lawyer who probably uses it more regularly but what I understand the clause to be and how I understand it to operate generally is that in the context of a long-term contract the tool is available to benchmark prices over the term of the contract to ensure that the parties are paying and receiving a fair market value of payment in whatever context that is so whether it's supply or something else But I think the purpose of it is to give the flexibility for pricing to change, to reflect the market. That's my very limited understanding of what benchmarking (laughs) is. But I guess we just on on that simple concept, um, even if it is a skeleton of, you know, what the purpose is really used for in across industry. Yeah, we could adapt it. And and then that leads me on to sort of thinking about what is Izzy's take on this? We've got the standard benchmarking mechanism. We know what it does. How does Izzy's clause change, amend, build on that? Well, how does it do it for the climate? The way that it works is that it's premised on it really being used in the, the construction universe at, at the moment. And in the context of a construction project, it assumes that there'll be a tender process before the project kicks off, which is pretty common in, I guess, large construction projects. And through the tender process, the expectation is that the contractor will submit a scorecard to the principal, which forecasts their emissions over the term of the project, um, itemized each year. And if the principal accepts that emission scorecard, then that forms the green baseline, which then is this concept in the clause. So then having the green baseline, the idea is that throughout the term of the contract, the contractor has to pause without, sorry, throughout the term of the contract, on each anniversary of the commencing date of the contract, the contractor has to provide the principal with another emission scorecard for the preceding year. And then on the basis of that data, if the emissions which are set out in the scorecard for that year are lower than the emissions which they forecasted in their scorecard that they submitted in the tender process, then that means that they beat their forecasted emissions and they'll get an incentive payment. So the payment of the incentive payment works on a sliding scale, depending on whether they beat or meet the emissions that they forecasted. But if the emission scorecard, which they submit on the anniversary of the commencing date, shows that they have exceeded the emissions that they forecasted, then that's when the benchmarking mechanism gets triggered. And that's when the principal has a right to then go out to the market to assess well, even though to consider the question about even though they've exceeded the emissions that they promised or forecasted that they would achieve, 
the idea is that the principal will go out to see, well, is anyone else doing this in a way where they're emitting less emissions or is everyone actually emitting the same amount of emissions that the contractor has indicated that they have done in the last year? And so that's why this concept of benchmarking allows it to be kind of a reasonable, like a reasonable concept so that the contract is not under any unrealistic expectation to emit emissions. So what, what is Izzy's take on the benchmarking mechanism? How does it bring greenhouse gas emissions into the consideration? So Izzy's clause takes this concept of benchmarking and it uses it as an incentive. And I'll explain how that happens. Um, it assumes that there's going to be a tender process and in construction projects there is generally a tender process, especially for big construction projects. And the idea is that the principal will require the tenderer or the contractor to submit a scorecard which forecasts their emissions for the term of the project which they're tendering for, itemized each year. And if the principal then accepts their scorecard, then the emission set out in that scorecard, which they submitted as part of the tender, becomes the green baseline. This concept of green baseline becomes really important for the purpose of the clause. So throughout the term of the project, once the contractor gets selected, they have to submit that scorecard every single year on the anniversary of the commencing date, which shows the emissions which they've emitted for the preceding year. Now there's two pieces of data to compare the emissions for the preceding year that the contractor has submitted and the emissions which the contractor forecasted that they would emit, um, emit through the tender process. If the scorecard indicates that the contractor's emissions are equal to or lower than the emissions that they forecasted, then they get an incentive payment and that operates on a sliding scale depending on whether they meet or beat the forecast, the forecasted emissions. And that exact incentive amount is just a matter for the parties to determine. It's not something we've put in, but you know, we've just created this concept of an incentive. So now if the contractor's emissions in the scorecard for the preceding year indicates that they've actually exceeded the emissions that they forecasted during tender for that same year, then that's when the benchmarking mechanism can get triggered because now the principal has a right to go out to the market to assess whether other suppliers or service providers or contractors or consultants or anyone, whether the market indicates that the contractor's emissions are in line with market, what everyone else is emitting, or whether the market is showing that the emissions that could be emitted are actually lower than what the contractor has actually emitted. And in that circumstance, if the principal, after going to the market, delivers a benchmarking report, which indicates that the market is actually doing better than the contractor in terms of the emissions that they are emitting, then that's actually an opportunity for the contractor and the principal to learn from each other and to collaborate. And in particular, there's 
their right for the, the principal to direct the contractor to make changes in their methodology and in the way that they're conducting the project in order to align with the market. So the idea isn't supposed to be like some sort of penalty or, or some sort of unfair or unrealistic direction. It's really a helpful tool for the contractor to adopt the findings of the benchmark report so that they can actually improve their own operations and reduce less emissions, which is better for everyone. So that's how Izzy's has tried to adapt this concept of benchmarking. You know, whether this works in practice will be really interesting to see because I think it really, you know, there's a few fundamental assumptions. One is that, you know, there'll be a tender process and that the principal will require the scorecard to be submitted as part of the tender process. And then the second one is that the principal will value low carbon emissions as something really important when choosing a tenderer and that they'll actually choose a tenderer with a low emission scorecard. Because the idea is that the contractor should be incentivized to put forward an emission scorecard during the tender phase because that's the most competitive period of time. So they need to impress the principal with their offering and their proposal and indicate the lowest amount of emissions possible. But it assumes that the principal will, will then value that in selecting them as tenderer. I so, absolutely love this idea that when you submit a tender, you're not only submitting a tender and trying to be as competitive as you can on price, but you're trying to be as competitive as you can on your carbon forecast as well. I think that's, that's really, really neat and really clever. I think you've already answered some of this, but perhaps we could draw out a little bit more about why a contractor would sign up to Izzy's clause. I guess, you know, for, for multiple reasons, you know, hopefully all contractors now, hopefully are valuing emissions as their, you know, as part of their business model, especially if they have shareholders. And so it's an opportunity for the contractor to look at this as really a collaborative process where, you know, they're trying to do their best, but if they, you know, fall short of that, the principal is there to conduct this benchmark, which they'll actually benefit from ultimately in their operations for these, this project and other projects going forward. So there is this, you know, reciprocal benefit that the parties can both achieve. Other reasons is that, you know, it may be a matter for company values to, you know, value net zero emissions. It also provides a way for them to distinguish themselves in the market and win business, especially if principles are valuing low carbon emissions these days. And it also provides them risk. So even though there is to some extent you know, resources and administration involved in this, the benchmarking provision that has been drafted does provide some reassurance that they won't be held to standards which are unreasonable in the market, so that if they don't meet their forecasted emissions, which they, you know, maybe were optimistic about during tender, they won't be penalised per se for that if that reflects the market. 
in what ways do you think Izzy could be adapted and tailored? Because we're very keen at the Chancery Lane project on allowing people to be able to bespoke things. So how would you bespoke Izzy? So what could be used to be adapted is really the scorecard, which is the, you know, the, the core of the clause. And the scorecard at the moment has, you know, there's a form provided in the playbook through Maria scorecard, but all of those items that are listed in that scorecard can be changed in any way to suit the project. And I guess because that's the core document that's holding this, you know, whole clause together, it can be as lean or as fulsome as a contractor wants to commit to. Thank you so much for coming on, Jenny. I really appreciate you taking your time out to talk to me. And also, I really appreciate that deep dive into Izzy's Claws. I think there's some really clever stuff in there about taking the tender process and really starting that benchmarking in the tender process by getting people to bid not only on the value of a project, but also on the carbon footprint of a budget. I think that's incredibly clever. And then flowing it all the way through right out to the other side of the contract and the completed piece of construction. There'll be contact details for Jenny, for me, the Chancery Lane project in the show notes, as well as links to all of the other things that we've mentioned today. And don't forget, of course, our new Climate Clause Selector tool is available free for you on our website, so you can download packets of clauses in a way which is much more user-friendly for your practice. Thank you very much to Lizzie Mathams, fantastic producer of this show, Leonard Lee, the editor who makes it all sound like magic, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do like and subscribe so you don't miss our other content. I've been Becky Anderson. It's been fabulous being able to talk to you. Goodbye.